Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. So I've got a new phone, Sherry. Yeah, you do. And believe it or not, we record this high-quality podcast on a phone. We got a big fancy microphone that plugs into the phone, but (laughs) we we use a phone app to record. Mm -hmm. And this is the first podcast that we're recording on the new phone, and you and I sat down. I tested this last weekend when I set up the new phone, and it worked. And we sat down to record this morning, and it didn't work at all. That's right. It kept rebooting my phone. I bet that was fun for you to sit there and watch me. Oh, an hour of, yes. So finally I got up to wash my face. Because we usually do these on the morning. Yeah. So I was like, well, I have things to do. And it's been almost an hour. So. Yeah, so when when I finally got it, and I said, Cherry, I think I've got it. You came back in, you sat down. And here's here's the reason I'm telling the story. I had to put everything back away in the oh. office before I was ready to I, record. Like I put the, the plug in the cords back away, and I put my old phone away that I was so using. So you weren't ready. Yeah. Well, I okay, I wasn't ready. But but how irritating is that? Not that I called you in when I wasn't ready, but that like I had to have everything in order before I was able to record this. Yeah. Oh, and then you took some time on your old phone looking at it. Like I was thinking, what is he doing? What is he doing with his old phone? Can he just put it down and let's record? Yeah. Yeah. So there are things about me that you just don't understand. You would have just, let's dive right into the recording and we'll put, put things away. We'll mess with that later. Right? Yeah. I think that's very typical for any, in any relationship, any married couple, there are things that uh, one spouse doesn't understand about the other. And that's fine. And I think that happens with any relationship. Absolutely. But it it is exacerbated. It is much bigger when it comes to alcoholism, uh, a relationship dealing with alcoholism. When I was actively drinking and I knew that that needed to come to an end, or at least when you needed, knew it needed to come to an end, which was before I knew <laughs> I was it needed to come there to an end. There was a huge time lapse there. I can remember, though, I can remember you saying when I would talk about how hard it is to quit or I, or I, I really don't want to quit, I want to moderate, or any of the many, many, you know, the decade of gyrations we went through with my drinking, I can remember you saying, I don't understand. Why don't you just quit? stop drinking? If you want to quit, stop drinking. Or when I would talk about moderation, if you just want to drink a couple and stop, then just drink a couple and stop. I don't get it. What was that like for you to see a human being that you otherwise, you know, thought was capable? I mean, I was able to shower and get dressed by myself in the morning and hold a job and feed myself when necessary. I mean, is that frustrating to look at that person and say, why can't you do this other really simple thing that seems very basic to me? Yeah, I mean, because I didn't realize the, uh, the I guess, the hold that alcohol has on your brain. So I didn't really understand. I mean, I guess it would be like asking someone to eat, you know, one potato chip, you know. And they're like, what? I can't. But Ooh, if you I just really saw something wanted, on how addictive potato chips are. Oh. It's a good reference. Um, But I get, you know, or one M&M, something like that. So I guess it just seems as crazy as that, but I thought, if this is something that's causing trouble, if this is something that's causing arguments, 
I definitely, like, if somebody said, you're going to really piss off your husband if you have one more potato chip. You can only have one or two. I'd be like, okay, I'll have one or two. So I didn't look, I didn't understand that it wasn't something that you could just stop at. Yeah. I mean, the addiction definitely makes it so that you can't just stop. And there's a lot of work that's involved. And that's a subject for a different conversation, one that we've had before and we've written about a lot. That the, but the misunderstanding is what I really I want to drive home today. When it comes to a relationship surviving recovery from alcoholism, there are so many misunderstandings. And they're, they're really basic and fundamental. And they can just wreak havoc on a couple's attempt to, to keep things, you know, to keep things stable and to save the marriage. So that's, that's the very first one. You didn't understand why I couldn't, why I couldn't quit if I said I wanted to quit. But then I did get into early sobriety. Ooh, another whole big pile of misunderstanding. I was super embarrassed by early sobriety at the beginning. I was embarrassed because I felt like I was the only you know, one in our friend group that couldn't handle his alcohol. So all of those people that drank, drank moderately, the ones that drank heavily, all of those people were normal. I was the weirdo. I was the oddball that couldn't drink and couldn't, couldn't drink because when I drank, I drank to excess. And so since I couldn't moderate and I had chosen sobriety with your encouragement, uh, I just felt like, I mean, it was, it was like a death sentence. There was nothing positive about it other than the fact that I was going to save myself some, some further shame from excessive drinking and, and save my family. Obviously those are two big things, but it was just hugely embarrassing. I didn't look at it as a, oh, you know, look at this great thing I'm doing for my family. Look at this great thing I'm doing for me. I looked at it like it's such a sign of weakness. And that must have been confusing for you too, right? I mean, because you could take or leave alcohol. You could go to a party and if you didn't feel like drinking, you just didn't drink. Like it was no big deal to you. So the fact that I was so shame-filled regarding my sobriety, what was that like? Um, yeah, I guess you kind of summed it up with saying, you know, I could take it or leave it. So I didn't understand what the big deal was. I didn't understand like that you felt like it was an unmanly thing or an uncool thing or you couldn't control it. I felt like who gives a rip? Like, this is you, you're doing you. Um, so I, yeah, yeah, I just, I don't, I don't know what to say. Um, I just, Ditto to what you said, Matt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just felt like, who cares? Like, and half the time, I guess maybe part of it was like, nobody's paying any attention to you anyhow. Well, that's... Like, I mean, I know that you and your grandiose mind of drinking days may have thought that everybody was paying all sorts of attention to you, and maybe the only attention they were paying was like, how much he was drinking or acting like a buffoon or, wow, he's really out of control. I don't... Because they weren't watching what you were drinking and how much. But I just know, like, for me, being an onlooker, I didn't pay attention to what people were drinking or not drinking. If you're the spouse of an alcoholic, I imagine you feel similar to how Sherry does. Like, what's the big deal? Who cares if you're not drinking? Nobody's paying attention to you anyway. But I want to break down what that embarrassment, the components of that embarrassment a little bit. The, the first component and this might be controversial. I know there are a lot of female alcoholics out there. There's actually, the statistics say that the, 
alcohol abuse among women is growing faster than the alcohol abuse among men. There are still way more male alcoholics than female, but, but the females are catching up. But I don't want to ignore the gender component because I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, everything that I did social, I played soccer on a men's league soccer team and all those guys were big drinkers. Anytime we went to a neighborhood function, a work function, with really very, very few exceptions, all the men were drinking at all of those functions. So, and, and not always are all the women drinking. Again, I'm not downplaying the significance and the increasing problem that females with alcohol problems are. But I still think in our society, maybe it's just in our age group, maybe it's just the friends we chose. So I wouldn't say it's universal, but I think it's pretty common that there's more pressure on men to drink than there are on females to drink in social settings. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I do. I definitely I definitely feel like it is more of a generational thing. Yeah. I think as we're, we get into the younger generations and even just the group of women that I have that are slightly younger than me, there's that that mommy wine culture mm-hmm. that was really big. And I was kind of growing out of those PTA moms that did that. So I think that that, um, that definitely, you know, resonates with, with me saying that, yeah, there's a lot more women that are coming up with drinking issues right. nowadays. But I do feel like if I were to look around at our friend group at a party, like, the women, all of them wouldn't be drinking or they would have a little mimosa and the guys would be drinking beer or, you know, something harder or taste this whiskey, you know, it, it it's seem, more pressure. It seems like for a female, there are more excuses not to drink, which, I mean, I think that this is a point worth making quickly. Alcohol is the only drug and alcohol is a drug. It's the only drug where you have to explain when you're not consuming it. If you go to a neighborhood party or you go to a bar or you're out with work colleagues, nobody's going to ask you, why aren't you doing meth tonight, Sherry? It's only alcohol that people will say, why, why aren't you drinking? Why aren't you consuming that poison? So, which is really, that that's another point that I want to make. Society is so enamored by alcohol that it, and it adds a huge layer when we talk about addiction, drug addiction specifically, it adds a huge layer to alcoholism when someone tries to quit drinking alcohol that doesn't exist with the other drugs in most areas of society. You just don't get asked, you know, why aren't you doing heroin today? That's not a that's not a question in most places that comes up. As we've kind of been conversing about this, it makes me wonder too how much of it is that gender role of men just not being open with feelings and conversation. And so the beer or the introduction of this new whiskey or, mm-hmm. you know, this tequila, whatever, is like the the way to infiltrate and kind of break down that barrier. So, for one, we know alcohol breaks down your inhibitions, but it's a gateway to a conversation. Yeah. Whereas men aren't good with small talk, you're, Well, you're, that, you're right. It's a gateway to a conversation. I mean, I, when I think back with my drinking buddies, people that I'm very fond of still to this day, I don't, I don't see them very much or hang out with them like I used to. But when I think about those conversations were about, they were about sports, sometimes politics, and what's the summer vacation going to be for you and your family. 
And that was about it. And so the depth of conversation, it's, it's not very deep among a lot of guys. And so you're right. Alcohol is not just a lubricant, but it's like it's a bonding force among men. And, you know, I think a lot of times there are just more reasons that that women have legitimate reasons not to be drinking. Certainly pregnancy or breastfeeding is one of them. But any anything kid related, um, you know, it's really easy to to be at a party. I shouldn't say easy. Gosh, I I don't want to do that. I don't want to downplay this. But there but there is a difference. And I think it's as as for equality and as important as equality is as much as you and I believe that in our hearts there still are gender differences when it comes to drinking and the stigma associated with drinking or not drinking and so i'm i'm glad you brought that that one up the the emotional shallowness of many men means drinking is even more necessary so we talked about society we talked about how Alcohol is different from other drugs because it's the only one where people are asking you why you're not consuming it. We talked about gender. For me, another big one is identity. And this is embarrassing to admit, but it's true. There, I'm definitely the kind of person that has a certain way that I think of myself as I move through the world. I own a Jeep Wrangler. And I love that I own a Jeep Wrangler and I love that I leave the top down all winter. That's like part of who I am. I, I, I don't know what I'm trying to prove necessarily. I'm not, it, it's not like a tough guy thing or, you know, I'm not like, hey, I go off roading every weekend because yeah. I don't. I never go off roading. Yeah, you don't. You don't even want to do that. But when I think of the perfect car for me, that Jeep Wrangler with the top down as I'm driving around in the snow is the perfect car for me. And you're making a face, and I know you're making that face because sometimes because I need your bigger car to haul something, you get stuck with the Jeep Wrangler when the top's down. It's not a convenient car of a family for six, that's for sure. It's not. You've called it selfish before, and I think that's fair. I have. I think that's fair. Now, the teen, teenage kids all love it. It's their yes. favorite car. Well, because it's a teenager car. Okay, so I have a teenager car. Good. <laughs> but, that, but so it's a little embarrassing to admit, but that's part of my identity. And I, I don't think I'm the only person that buys a car because it says something about who they are. I, again, I don't know what it says. I don't, I don't go off-roading. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, but I love that car, and it's a part of me. For many years... Boy, you know, for the first 20 years that you and I were together, I wore Adidas Gazelle shoes, like kind of indoor soccer shoes with, that were red, bright red. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much all I wore except for like my church shoes and my flip-flops. Yeah. yeah. Which were Adidas. Yeah. Yeah. I got a little brand loyalty thing. You have a brand loyalty. I to the fact that not only do you drive a Jeep Wrangler, the other two cars in our family are Jeeps. Yes. Like, if we were to choose another brand, that would probably go against your identity. There's some practicality living in Colorado with the snow, and we've got it. Our driveway yeah. runs along the side of our house, and it's imp- kind of impossible to shovel without shoveling it into our neighbor's yard, which is rude. And it's the So the four-wheel drive is helpful going into the mountains. I get it. So there's some practicality, but you're right. There's some brand loyalty there, too. You definitely make things your identity. I do. I remember also with your red Adidas Gazelles, you used to drink Bacardi Black. Ooh, yes. A type of um, Bacardi rum. Yeah, it wasn't dark. It was 
black. black. Yeah, it was labeled black. And I liked that. Mm-hmm. And, and then it went out of business. <laughs> they discontinued that label. Bacardi did, and that was very sad for me. But that was kind of like your kind of signature drink. I've always had that kind of identity thing. I mm-hmm. find stuff I like, and then I glom onto it, and it's who I am. It says a lot to me about who I am. Like you said earlier, when I'm embarrassed about my sobriety... I don't think anyone else notices. I don't think anyone else cares. I don't think anyone else notices my identity stuff. I mean, people notice me when I'm driving my Jeep with the top down <laughs> in January. But they aren't impressed or anything by any means. They're like, when it's look at that snowing. fool. Yeah. What's wrong with that guy? Well, so the, for a while, like, when you were drinking, like, craft beer. I mean, and here we moved to Colorado. And it's, you can't, like, throw a rock in, you know, a business part of the town without hitting a marijuana dispensary now (laughs) and a craft brewery or brew pub or something. Yeah, I had an identity issue with IPAs, India Pale Ales, (laughs) always wanted them to be brewed locally here in Colorado. That was a big identity thing for me. I also, you know, if I was drinking hard alcohol, I wanted to be drinking whiskey on the rocks. I drank a lot of vodka on the rocks. I think all alcoholics do because it doesn't smell there are a variety of reasons why alcoholics end on vodka. But if I really wanted, like what I really wanted was to drink whiskey on the rocks. Or, you know, <laughs> I don't know. It was an identity thing. Again, I don't know exactly what the persona was I was trying to portray. I'm not a particularly tough guy. I've never been in a fight. I got punched in the ear by a bouncer once. That hurt a lot. I didn't chew for a week. <laughs> so... I've never claimed to be a particularly tough guy. I don't think that's what the whiskey or the IPA was about. But there was some identity piece to it. I No, I'm not drinking that gross Bud Light. Give me an IPA. Give me a whiskey. And so sobriety took away a huge chunk of my identity. And again, we're going back to this theme. You didn't understand that. That, that made no sense to you that I... I so much of my self-confidence, who I was, you know, it would be like cutting out my left lung and being like, there, operate without your lung. Like, that's how it felt to me to be sober. I mean, you were already pretty disgusted by me, by my drinking. When I reacted that way to the identity piece of sobriety, you must have been just disgusted with me. You thought, like, who is this weak simple loser of a man I'm with. Did I put the words in your mouth you again? You did, you did. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other words. Sorry. Um, well, you and I have always had this going on. Like, when you would worked for other people or, you know, or if somebody said something, I'm like, well, just say that you didn't agree with that or you were, you had a, you had a very big concern from my standpoint about your outward appearance. I guess maybe I just am more of the mindset of I don't give a shit or I don't care what the reaction is going to be from somebody. Um, so To your detriment to sometimes. De- yes. So I feel like that was something that was always a part of our, you know, I'd roll my eyes and be like, well, let's say something. Yeah. You know, um, about it. Stand up for yourself. You're like, no, it's just not the way we do things in business. Okay, whatever. It sounds stupid to me, but go ahead. Moan about it. So when it got to this point of the relationship in our life where I had gone through cycles of sobriety and the mopey and the whiny and then 
now that you, we hadn't known, but you said, I definitely felt like this is different. This sobriety is different. And I did too. But when you definitely got to that, oh my gosh, these bubbly waters are so great, but the can is slightly pink or it's a little slim, tall one, you know, because it's a mixed flavor of bubbly water. I thought, who cares, you know? And it just, it was just one more, like, I don't know, brick that drug me down, you know, or drug you down. I don't know which it would be because I felt like I was kind of cut off and Are over we you. swimming with a brick? How is well, the brick dragging us down? Like, you know, sinking, sinking like the my, relationship. my former boss like, with his mixed up analogies? Yeah, I guess so. No, I'm sorry. I don't mean to tease. No. I just felt like it was just one more. Maybe it was just the brick adding more of a wall. Like, oh, there's the brick. There's the there. brick builds the yeah. wall of resentment. Well, and just like, oh my gosh, just get away from him because I was over you by that point. So I'm I'm looking at my notes and I'm going to drive this point home even more. Believe it or not, if you think we've beaten the dead horse, it's not dead yet. <laughs> sobriety for me in early sobriety was like having my kids taken away. I know you're making so you're making this face like, oh my god, that's way too dramatic. <laughs> it is very dramatic. That's kind of how it feels, though. But it it see, feels that's like the drama a huge... of the alcoholic that I you're just right. can't tolerate. It's that's fair. why I was over you. Well, alcoholics are very dramatic. You're right because our moods get thrown way too high when we're in the euphoric state, and way too low after when the day after when we're mourning our decision-making when we were drinking. So you're right. There is a ton of drama that's related to alcoholism. But I, I, want, I want our listeners to understand what it feels like for someone like me. I'm not saying every alcoholic's like this. I know lots that aren't. But there are lots of high-functioning alcoholics who think they've got life figured out and <clears throat> alcohol is adding so much to their life. And then they finally admit they've got to deal with sobriety and what that feel the shame of sobriety there's a reason that our our uh, blog is named sober and unashamed because when i got to a year of sobriety and i finally felt bold enough to write about it and admit it the shame was the thing that i was most proud of shedding even more so than the alcohol being able to move out of this place of shame and the shame is so detrimental and debilitating and it's what keeps alcoholics drinking way past the point when they know they need to stop so if it seems like I'm over dramatizing this, maybe I am, but this is what it felt like. It felt like having my kids taken away. It feels like here, I'll put it in a sport. I wrote, I wrote some other ideas. I'll put it in a sport analogy for, for some of our um, football or basketball loving listeners. It's like rooting for the Packers. And then all of a sudden you're told you have to root for the Vikings. Like you can't do that. You spent your whole life as a Packers fan. This is a huge rivalry. That that's not going to be a good feeling. It's going to feel like a chunk of you was ripped out. Hmm. Or I have to pay homage to our lineage, our hometown, our our place of origin. It's like growing up and spending your whole life as an IU fan, and then suddenly rooting for the Purdue Boilermakers basketball team. Well, you did that. I know that's that's another whole that's another issue. But it's <laughs> it's very bizarre. You must admit. Yes. I mean, all of our friends think I'm a lunatic. Yes. Like the idea that you can switch in a rivalry like that is crazy. Okay, let's let's look at it from politics standpoint. Now, we don't like to spend much time in politics, but it's like if you were a lifelong Democrat 
and you were forced to vote for Trump. That identity. You, you identify with this set of policies and this group your whole life, and then all of a sudden you're placing this unbelievable vote. Like That's what it's like to go from a lifelong drinker to all of a sudden I'm sober. Or to, to give the flip side, to be fair, because we don't want to be political on this podcast, if you're a lifelong Republican suddenly forced to vote for Hillary, which is something I can identify with. But again, we're not going to talk about politics, so we're going to just so, go ahead and move on. So you felt like giving up alcohol was like getting your children ripped away from you and also your identity was then left kind of shattered because you had built up your identity around being this drinker. Yeah. And then there you are filled with shame because you can't be like normal quote-unquote people normal quote-unquote guys. Yeah. And then you're also obsessed with how it's going to look from the outside of other people. Who who I now know weren't watching and didn't care. But mm-hmm. at the time, you think you really do think they are. You you think that others you think these identity the pieces. If I all of a sudden started driving a Subaru instead of a Jeep, um, our neighbors would be shocked. That's for sure. Yeah, shocked, but they wouldn't care. But they wouldn't care. They wouldn't They'd care. be like, oh, whatever. Just- when I when I stopped wearing the red gazelles because I started coaching soccer at a team whose arch rival was red and the red was no longer welcome. Nobody cared. I mean, they, they would care if I walked on campus with the red on, like, what are you doing with those? But nobody cared what I switched to. Nobody cares. Nobody cares about our identity. But for us, especially, I think you made a good point that I, I've I always, as a drinker was extra dramatic. I think a lot of drinkers are extra dramatic. It was super important to me, that identity piece. And you just didn't understand. Mm Mm-mm. And the reason you didn't understand is because it's largely illogical. Yes. And thanks for indulging me while I made all those dramatic points. When we spend all this time denying the truth about our addiction, thinking we've got it under control, trying to put rules in place to exert control over the addiction, when we, when we deny the truth about our addiction with such passion, and then all of a sudden, boom, we say, okay, i got to get sober, I've recognized the truth, and we all of a sudden accept it, the, the switch, the wave of reality, it's, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose. You know, all of this stuff that you've pushed away and denied for decades, and then all of a sudden you're accepting it as the truth. It's just a really, it's a really hard switch to make. And it's part of the reason why addiction is so hard to beat, because you just really can't believe that this is my life. I really don't drink anymore. Since I was five years old, I associated alcohol with success and manliness and adulthood. And now I don't do that anymore? Well, well, how do I know I'm successful or an adult or a man if I don't do the one thing that I had that told me that I was those things? So it, it's, it's hard. And I, I just feel like for a lot of our listeners, if their spouse, if their drinking spouse is going through this and they don't understand the shame that's involved in sobriety or, or, you know, the physical addiction is one thing. The routines that we develop, the patterns, oh, I'm grilling out. Well, I don't grill without a beer in my hand, so it's really hard to grill without drinking. That's, that's one piece of it. That's a huge part of beating addiction. But there's also this identity piece that's, it's, 
you know, it's misunderstood. It's not understood by a lot of the loved ones of alcoholics because it's illogical, but, but it, it's, it's real. It exists. Because it's something that you, in your mind, created as the drinker. You created, you built this up. You think that that's your identity. That's all internal. Absolutely. It's nothing external for most of us. It's part of that poisoned brain. It's part of that Mm -hmm. warped brain of alcoholism, building up this identity. You're absolutely right. I want to talk a little bit about the advice that we give to alcoholics in early sobriety is that they go into hiding for a year. And that seems, again seems like everything we're talking about in this podcast is dramatic. But a year seems like so much time. But here's the deal. It takes that long for our brain chemistry to adjust. It takes that long for us to replace old toxic patterns with new, better patterns. And what we suggest to people is look at your calendar and look at all the events that you normally go to that you think you'll probably get an invitation to that are alcohol-centric. And just cross them off the list for a year. I know that sucks. I know that it's with people that you really want to see, family, friends that you really want to spend time with. I know that that, for some people, that um, race day barbecue for the Kentucky Derby is something you've been doing for 15 years and drinking mint juleps and, oh, I'll just go and not drink mint juleps. No, you won't. You'll go and you'll be miserable and you might break and drink or you might break and drink later. You might get through that event, but the stress of it was so bad that you might drink two days later. I mean, we've seen it so many times over and over. So our recommendation to people is take a whole year off, cross all those events off the calendar, unless it's something that you absolutely have to go to for work or like, you know, a a one, you can leave yourself one or two family events that are just unavoidable. We, we did that in my first year of sobriety, but otherwise go into hiding for a year. I'll tell you a couple of stories from that early sobriety period that were particularly difficult for me. I, I went to a work function. So this is one of the ones on the, I cannot avoid this list. I have to go. It's a mandatory mm-hmm. work function. And everyone there was drinking IPAs and various Colorado brew beers in big, you know, glass pint glasses. The sun was setting on this patio we were on. I mean, it was just the perfect setting for beer drinking. And I was terrified. There were people at this event I didn't know very well. I just I was already had a little bit of social anxiety and when the server came up to me and asked me what I wanted to drink I said I'd like a soda water with a lime and she brought it back to me you know again everyone's got these golden amber pint glasses she brought it to me in a 32 ounce red plastic Coca-Cola cup that said Coca-Cola all along the side and had like four straws sticking out of the top and it was so big I had to hold it with two hands why would anybody need that much even just soda know. water I don't just know just a full it was like they took their Serving advice from 7-Eleven or something. Here's your big gulp of soda with a lime. It should have come with a urinal strap on the side of it. It was ridiculous. But it was like a neon sign saying, I'm the alcoholic over here. I'm the guy who can't handle his booze. Oh, I see you've all got your pint glasses of Colorado home brews or uh, local brews. Not me. Not me. I'm drinking soda water with a lime. It was devastating, and I broke into a cold sweat. I didn't pay any attention to the topics being discussed at this work function. All I wanted to do was get the hell out of there. I'm just thinking if it was like, because you were trying to play off that it was just like, 
like vodka and soda or something? Well, I had I was I had been sober long enough that I knew I didn't want to replace the beer calories with like Coca Cola calories. I didn't want to replace it with sugar soda calories. Pop, so yeah. soda water was something I drank a lot. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, did I hope that she would bring it to me in a, in a glass like a a pint Normal beer glass person. or a, a nine ounce rocks glass with a lime and a little stir stick? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And and I learned the next phase in my early sobriety, I asked for that. I would say when I would order a soda water with a lime, I'd say I'd like it in this specific kind of glass. I don't like to drink out of plastic. I would be very specific. Now, I don't give a rip what anybody thinks. And I would actually like the, the big gulp of Because then you wouldn't have to water, like, track them down. I like to drink soda water. So I would guzzle that thing. Yeah. But Sorry. at the time, it was... Absolutely devastating. You brought, you know, another one you brought up, the bubbly water that's marketed specifically to women in the skinny cans or the pink and purple art design. I don't know if it's so much marketed to women. Oh, come on. Some of those are. Well, some of them are just like berry. Okay. So some of the bottled waters, we're not going to like plug names. Some of the canned waters have berry as purple. Some of them has them as pink. Like, we like a strawberry one, and it has pink writing because strawberry is kind of pink. So I think it tries to coordinate with your flavor. There is some of that. But, <laughs> but then there's the blended ones that are... But now they have those, fruit, like, fruit. seltzers, you know, the alcoholic seltzers that are in the tall, skinny cans. Oh, yeah. Adding my one drink that I felt good about, they've now added alcohol to. Yes. I don't even want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay. It Sorry. doesn't actually bother me. I'm okay. Yeah. But But see that's what that's my mindset. My mindset was like they're just trying to give you the flavor color coordination. Excellent point. And my mindset was I've already I'm already so emasculated because I can't drink an IPA. Why don't you just take my one remaining testicle because <laughs> I have to drink this tall, well, skinny pink can. And you would like grapefruit and they have grapefruit as being pink all the time. Yeah. So that's probably why you were really married. Very, very emasculating yeah. in early sobriety. Now could not give a rip. Yeah. But th- but these are real things. So if, you're, if your loved one has this identity crisis like I did after identifying as a drinker for so long and then they're going through early sobriety and they face these things like the 32-ounce Coca-Cola cup or the skinny bubbly water <laughs> and you're like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> it is. I will admit it's ridiculous, but it's also real. And it was something I really struggled with early on. We talk a lot about what things people can say when they're in early sobriety. You know, for a lot of us that have that drinker's identity, and then you go to some neighborhood function or some birthday party for a friend, and all your friends are there, and they've only ever seen you drink. They've never, ever, ever seen you take a night off of drinking. And all of a sudden, you're not drinking. There's going to be questions. There's going to be questions. We can go back to what we said earlier about people really don't give a rip about you. They only care about themselves. And I believe that to be largely, largely true. But if you've always been the life of the party and you're suddenly not drinking, they're going to ask what's going on. And so some of the things that we recommend to people saying in early sobriety, you know, just keep it simple. I'm just taking a break. Just not drinking tonight. And with nine out of 10 people, you'll get away with that. There'll be that one out of 10 that's like, what are you talking about? You've never taken a break in your life. And they're going to prod. And you've yeah, got to be prepared asshole. to deal with that. With that <laughs> then asshole, you yeah. just, Then you just sick your wife on him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But some other thing, you know, I, I'm a big fan of honesty. I'm not a fan of lying. Um, but I do think this is an area where some little white lies 
in my humble opinion, are acceptable to get you through that first year of early sobriety that's so hard. Hey, I got to make an airport run later. I got to pick up my cousin that's coming in from Poughkeepsie. and uh, Got to make sure that you're telling lies that are not going to be, you know, found out later. But Yeah, but so. the airport run, I got an early meeting in the morning. You know, that's on another medication. good one. Wasn't that one you used? I don't know. That, see, I don't think I ever used these, but I have... At this point, like I look back and I wish I did, and I definitely advise people to when they're in early sobriety because I didn't understand early sobriety. I didn't use these because I thought the way I felt those first couple of months of sobriety was how I was going to feel forever in sobriety. Mm. So I said, I'm not going to start lying because I'll have to lie for the rest of my life. I didn't realize the transition that takes place, the confidence that builds in sobriety eventually after that first year or so. So that that brings me to the what I would say now. I mean, I'm just—I just can't wait for the next person to ask me why I'm not drinking because I'm going to say, well, "Well, that shit'll kill you." Well, well, not me, but it looks like you have something to worry about. Like I'm very in your face now about it because I believe alcohol to be a poison in any quantity, not just for me, but for anyone who consumes it. So the the drastic shift from being panic stricken in a literal cold sweat because of my plastic 32 ounce soda cup to now having a little bit of pity for people who drink because they don't realize that even in small quantities they're doing damage to their body or maybe they do realize and they don't care but it's it's a dramatic shift the the me now is a far cry from the me in early sobriety and so for the loved ones of alcoholics I think it's really important to understand not only will your spouse likely make that shift if they make it long enough in in sobriety but the panic that they're in, the loss of identity is real. So the title of this podcast episode is is Why the Shame of Early Sobriety Wrecks Marriages. And so I want to dive deeper into the impacts on marriage. We've talked about the fact that the spouse of the alcoholic likely doesn't understand the many of the challenges uh, in early sobriety the societal challenges the gender challenges the identity crisis all of what we've talked about but how does that actually impact the marriage and in many cases you know pile on to the other things that are making the marriage unsurvivable and that's the first thing i want to talk about the piling on the resentment already exists to such a large degree when an alcoholic gets sober. Sherry, talk a little bit about that. There were so many things that I had done that sobriety really meant very little to you. Maybe it meant that I wasn't going to do any or I wasn't going to do as much bad stuff to to create more damage in the relationship, but the damage that it was already done was plenty. You had tons of resentment, right? Yes. Yes. I did. Um see what did early sobriety so early sobriety meant that you were just kind of half-hearted you felt like you know like you had explained earlier that somebody had taken away your kids your best friends no you know you were alone in the world so you were very mopey yeah um you were dramatic but unenthusiastic about the things that i felt like you should already be um excited about um, so that created a lot of tension between us. Yeah. And then you, as you were learning, you know, you kind of wanted to share, but I was 
just so over talking about, I was so done talking about alcohol, um, that I just really found myself just not even wanting to connect or have a conversation. I didn't want to hear about your new sobriety tricks. I didn't want to hear about your new, you know, things that you learned because I felt like you were always trying to convince me about how you can moderate and this is my new plan that I felt like this so is just another... So when I would another... tell you what I learned, you felt gas like you were being gaslighted mm, still. I guess, yeah. Like, or do I, I... Quite frankly, I don't even know if it was being worried about being told lies. I just felt like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. This whole relationship has been about you and alcohol and everybody else has been down the line. Like, third, fourth, and fifth. So... I guess I just didn't want to hear what your plans were. You just needed to get better. You just needed to get over it. So, so you've got all this resentment. You've got that. You've gotten to this point where you really just don't care. You don't know if you're going to be lied to. If I'm going to change my mind. If I'm going to come to you three months or six months later and say, "Oh, I've got it figured out this time. I've got this." Yeah. This new plan. These like new I rules. Like I was just abusing alcohol. Yeah, well, I now, would abuse it. Well, now. and the scary thing is. Like, we've been through this a while, but now advertised on television are these pills where, like, oh, you just want to, you don't want to drink a fifth of vodka every night. You just want to drink on the weekend. So take these pills. I don't know if you've seen that one. I've seen some stuff. But it's not like an anabuse thing. It's something else. Like, that you can just moderate through the day, the weekdays, <laughs> and then just let it all out. Like, Here, take these THC edibles during the weekdays. So I don't you know won't what drink. it is. I mean, I probably should have investigated before I opened my mouth on the podcast and talk about it. But well, it I is, guarantee it's crap. I mean, but it is, you I'm know, you. scary that then somebody could be suckered in, sure. or even some of the readings of people that I really like, they talk about the difference between alcohol abuse and alcoholism. So then that kind of like splitting hairs. Yes. And then it feels like, oh, well, then you're just going to get tricked into thinking that you were an abuser of alcohol. Yeah. That you used it to medicate. Now, if you just control yourself or if I'm on antidepressants or anti-anxiety pills, I can still drink like a normal person. So you're full of resentments from my active alcoholism. You pile on top of that. The feelings that you just described. You just don't care. You don't want to hear another word about my plans. You're done. And then I'm moping around about all this shame that I feel because my identity has been ripped away. That piece, that shame piece, it must have seemed so trivial to you. There's all these other huge things. And I'm worried about going to a work function and drinking soda out of a red cup. Like, you must have been like, who, is that really important to you? Yeah. I guess I just didn't have any understanding or any concept how shameful it felt. Shameful when you were drinking. Shameful when you had the aftermath. The shamefulness of not drinking. And maybe the shamefulness of how much you let it control and be a part of your identity. So that it just made me, it just made no sense to me. Yeah. Because I hadn't become... I don't feel like I've ever become attached to anything like that before. I would agree. Ex- well, your cat. Ex- except for the current cat that we have now. But, you know, be- you know, besides, like, people. Even, even I didn't let myself get lost in people. Like, I would see some of my girlfriends in high school and college get lost in their boyfriends. And they became... You know, I just, I just never attached myself to something like that. And I felt like... Our alcoholism, 
I definitely felt attached and I wanted not to be attached to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I think it's important that people realize, because we say it all the time, that not only does sobriety not fix anything, it is, however, a prerequisite, but in early sobriety, when the alcoholic stops drinking, the relationship almost always gets worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And this is what we're talking about. You've got all that stuff that's already piled up that makes you not like me. And then the things that I'm concerned about seem very trivial compared to the reality of the mountain of problems we've got to address. Yeah. It's, I mean, it. it's so hard. But I think talking about it and getting it out there for the loved ones, the alcoholics to understand will at least cushion the blow for what the reality of early sobriety is. And, and I, it is something that can be worked through. You and I worked through it and we're in a much, much better place now. Well, and I think it's also just being okay with the fact that you don't understand. I never, I would say to you, I don't get it. I don't get that feeling that you get from drinking. I don't understand it. I yeah. personally don't get it. It doesn't make me feel this way. But you have to say, that's okay. You don't get it. I, you know, you don't get you, I, you know, or I don't get what you're going through, but that's okay. I just have to accept it. Yeah. And I have to be as compassionate as I can about those feelings, just how you have to be compassionate and understanding of, wow, I'm really not a fun person to be with right now. I am not at all what we thought was going to happen, you know, 20 years down the road in our relationship. You, I think you're a lot of fun. Well, not always. Not back when you were had <laughs> daggers for me and w- weren't sure which pedal you'd step on. But I mean, like you moping around in early sobriety, you know, I yeah. couldn't see what you weren't excited about. I mean, I understood a little bit, but not much. But you have to be okay. What I'm just saying is, you have to be okay of accepting that you're not going to understand each other's side. Yeah, it's true. I want to talk about gender again. In our shout sobriety program. For alcoholics and early sobriety, we we are actually pretty much fifty fifty split between men and women in the group, mm-hmm. and we so we we don't have enough data to call this scientific research, but it's a lot and it's very interesting. When we do the initial conversations when we're first starting to get to know people that we're inviting into shout sobriety, when it's a woman who's who's newly joining us. Almost always, the conversation is dominated by the impact of alcohol on the family. And when it's a man that we're inviting into the group, almost always the conversation is dominated by talk about work. And they're, they're, it's fascinating. I am the, I'm not a sexist at all. You're not a sexist at all. But you just can't ignore the... That these are the, how the conversations go. Not that we drive the conversations that way, but the way that the people that are joining us drive them each time. And when we talk about men being so concerned about work and the impact that their drinking has on their ability to provide and to make income and to exceed, to excel and to get promotions, not drinking, sadly, in our society still can have an impact on that. There are places where... If you're not drinking with the boss or drinking with the clients, one of the books that I read early on is called Drunk on Sports by Tim Kalashaw, who's a talking head on ESPN. And he talks about how he's glad to be sober, 
but he doesn't know how back when he was a young reporter if he didn't drink how he ever would have developed a relationship with some of the NFL team owners or the major league baseball managers who he got all of his information from at the bar and if he had not been drinking they wouldn't have opened up to him there's some truth to that it makes me super sad but there is some truth that being the, a not drinker in our working culture sometimes can be a detriment. And so I only bring that up because there's all these difficult things that are misunderstood and hard to understand by the spouse. But when the man is the drinker and they're concerned about how their sobriety is going to impact their ability to provide and their work life, you know, they're also concerned that they got caught drinking on the job on the Zoom call or whatever. Um, so it goes both ways. But the impact that work has on the mentality of am I a drinker or am I in early sobriety, it's huge. It's a big it's a big piece of the puzzle. And so I don't want to dwell on it, but I, I think it's 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 worth mentioning. I know when it came to me for my early sobriety, we talked about the one work function with the Coca-Cola cup, but there were other work-related things where I just couldn't imagine going and being sober because I thought it would be, you know, just a hit to my my persona and, you know, nobody would want to hang out with me because I was, I was that weird sober guy standing in the corner. So, again, it's, it's hard to understand. I'm sure for you that would have been hard to understand, but it's a big, it's a realistic piece of it. And that's not to say that women can't be concerned about how their work friends are going to think of them too. I mean, a hundred percent, absolutely. That's a concern. I'm just saying that the people that we work with, all of the focus for the females is on the family. And a lot of the focus for the males is on the impact at work. Patriarchal society. What's that? Patriarchal society. Patriarchal society. Still. Absolutely. But you're right, like the, and it, let's just, I'm not going to try to make friends here with guys that are listening, but maybe it's to this shallowness of the men and how they can't really feel comfortable in their own skin and they have to have those inhibitions removed or lessened by the alcohol and they think they can trust one another if they're drinking together. So it's building a confidence that's not even really there. It's building a fake confidence. Also that need, while we're bashing men, that need for uh, the external validation is it seems to be stronger among men. Certainly can be strong with women as well. Mm -hmm. But often the maternal instinct, the, the family bond is what's most critical to females. And yeah. certainly that's, I... with, in our case, that's, that's true. I mean, your guilt that you feel when the kids have a day off school and you're not going to the mountains hiking with them is is real and it's yeah. something that I didn't understand for a long time well and I used to I would I would say that maybe when our kids were a lot younger we, we have our youngest who's in fifth grade and our oldest is in college so we're pretty spread out but I think with those the older kids the college and the late high school some of those friends I probably wouldn't have minded like hanging out all day and not drinking but with some of the younger kids friends at least with the youngest, for sure, because there's a big, bigger gap. Um, those are the people that were like, oh, let's get together for wine. And it developed that um, wine while the kids play after school, sort mm -hmm. of. So I do feel a little awkward. 
saying, no, I just don't drink. Because they're all like, well, it's just wine. Like, it's just, you know, juice or soda or seltzer water or something. It's yeah. like, oh, it's just wine. It's just crack. You know? So I'm like, yeah. And the book clubs and... Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's getting more progressive with women, for sure. Sadly. But truly. Couldn't agree more. So what's the solution? If your marriage is being negatively impacted by the mindset of early sobriety what's what's the solution and you know the only thing that i feel comfortable promoting as a solution is time this stuff just takes time you got to hold on tight and get to the point where <laughs> rather than making excuses for why you're not drinking you're telling someone who is drinking oh that shit'll kill you well not me but maybe you have something to worry about and get that scoffy look on your face it it takes a, a long time to get there and it's it takes a big change in mindset. I tell people all the time, you know, sobriety, the physical addiction, the change in habits and patterns, that's hard, but it's also the easy part. It's the shift in mindset to the point where you recognize that you're not, woe is me, I'm the only one at this party that can't drink. You are, thank God, I don't have to drink that stuff anymore and I've figured this out. And I can live the rest of my life in a positive way. Because when that mindset shift happens, there's so much positivity surrounding the former drinker, surrounding the former drinker, drinker that the relationship can't help but take a boost in the arm from it. And you, Sherry, you've talked about how unattractive I was as a whiny person in early sobriety. Once some of the confidence came back, I'm sure you weren't hoping for me to go to the egomaniac place that I could be as an alcoholic sometimes thinking I had everything figured out. But once some of the self-confidence came back, that's got to be helpful toward moving toward a more productive and happy marriage. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. All right. Great. I didn't know if you wanted to elaborate on that, but it seems like you're, you're good. I think that, that well, and it's time and trust slowly rebuilding the trust yeah. that yeah you know what i'm trusting i'm trusting this new piece of software that we're using to record this because we've been talking for almost an hour and i have no idea if this has been recorded <laughs> so i guess if our listeners are listening to this then you'll know yay we found a new way to record our podcast with our new device and if we skipped a week and there was a gap in podcast episodes it's because i'm really upset that I can't figure this out. But let's uh, cross our fingers and hope it worked. Thanks for talking to me about it. Whether whether anyone gets to listen to it or not, Sherry, it was good for me. Was it good for you? It was good for me. Great. Okay. Love you. Love you. <laughs> Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.